Thank you for tuning in to Adversity University, and welcome to class. Hey, everyone. Today, we had a, a fantastic guest. He really hit on some things that I think this podcast has been missing, um, a, big, a big piece of adversity in a lot of people's lives is you know some anxiety, some depression. Even if you don't have it, you probably know someone who does, even if they aren't showing the signs. And there was a ton of great insight today from Carter. Garrett, I'll let you kind of kick it off with some of your thoughts. One thing I touch on at the end of the episode, but you know, we talk about on this podcast how we want to interview highly successful people or athletes. And I think we may have gotten caught up in the fact that success to us is being well known. Um, and I quoted in the podcast, but success is going from one failure to the next without a loss of enthusiasm. And I think Carter matches that description perfectly. Um, I don't want to talk too much about his story, but he talks about the struggles at UMass Lowell. He touches on depression, which we haven't touched on a lot at all, um, and anxiety as well. So I think for anyone out there that's going through some of these problems, this is a very informative episode, um, and I think everyone's really going to enjoy it. Yeah, I wrote down a bunch of great quotes from Carter here, and I don't know if I want to you know, ruin any of them because they were so good in the episode itself. Um, but the one that I, I do really want to use is, abuse the things that make you happy because momentary happiness leads to a whole staircase. And, you know, he said that he finds some of his outlets through music and stand-up comedy and the TV show friends. So little things like that, you know, just you need to do what it takes to make yourself happy because those things are going to help you find that whole road. And uh, yeah, we, we can't thank Carter enough for really opening up because this is a, a tough topic and, you know, one of the big pushes right now is to end the stigma around mental health and we definitely want to do everything we can to help drive that force. Let's kick it on over to Carter Hokeman. Today's guest is from Lexington, Massachusetts. He earned his undergraduate degree from the University of Massachusetts Lowell in journalism while playing Division I men's soccer. Since then, he has fallen back on his skills obtained from school and works for the New England Revolution, DraftKings, while also writing blog posts, comparing every, ma or every major sports team in Boston, and hosts a podcast. We are excited to be joined by Carter Hokeman. What's going on, guys? Carter, thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me. What was it like growing up in Massachusetts, where there is such a rich culture in basically every, ma every major sport except soccer, and what made you choose that route? It's interesting growing up in a in a culture and around a city that values its sports franchises so much. Um, I was fortunate enough to have parents that encouraged me to try uh, anything and everything I could uh, surrounding sports. You know, I, would, I would try baseball. I tried hockey. I tried obviously soccer. Uh, ever so briefly tried lacrosse and was terrible to track. And it's uh, it almost encourages you to find your niche. And um, it's definitely a fast paced environment. But fortunately enough, I wasn't, um, for me, I, I believe, you know, I grew up outside of Boston. I grew up in, in, in the suburbs of, in, in Lexington, and it was definitely a little bit more slower paced, which was nice. And it also had a very high focus on education. Um, so I think, you know, with, you know, the surroundings, you know, being so close to Boston and being, it being so readily available, it's definitely an interesting environment. And it's nice to be, I think, just on the outskirts of that. Um, if I were to have grown up right in the heart of Boston, I think it would have uh, been a little bit different for me, but, um, there, you know, you take the good with the bad. And I think, uh, I've made the best out of the situation that I've had, which, you know, coming from where I'm from, it's not a terrible situation to start from either. Something many kids unfortunately go through is being bullied. Uh, when you were younger, bullying got so severe that it forced you out of private school. In hindsight, what did you learn from this experience? Yeah, I, um, I'm not going to name the private school just because I do, I, I have no real animosity towards the school uh, itself because it's a great school, great faculty. Um, at the time, I was being pretty severely bullied. Um, it, when I brought it to the attention of the faculty who I thought would be able to help me, they didn't, they kind of just did the boilerplate, say you're sorry, and then, you know, move on with it. It, it definitely taught me to, to fend for myself a little bit and stick up for myself in ways that I didn't know I had to. Um, it was around that time that uh, my parents 
uh, it was shortly after that time that my parents had gotten divorced um, when I was seven years old. And so that time I was already sort of in a tough spot mentally. And, you know, being, I went to the school that was outside my town. So I went, I went there. I didn't know anybody there. There's only, there's only one other kid who I knew was from my town, but we didn't really know each other very well. So, and this was the type of school that if you didn't already have friends going into that school, you were pretty much on your own and they weren't going to let you into their, their circles. And yeah, it did. It did make me have to make a tough decision. And I went, I finally went to my parents. I was like, this is the situation that's happening. And I, I can't, I can't survive here anymore. I'm not going to be mentally healthy. Um, and it's, I'm just going down a path that I don't want to go down. And so I went, I, I told my parents, I was like, I need to get out and I need to go to the public schools because I know I have friends from home there. Um, and I know it'll be easier for me to lean on people that I know I can trust. It's a really mature decision you made at such a young age, but if you could go back and maybe not you per se, but what would you have liked to see some of the faculty do in that situation? I know that, you know, it's a tough spot for them too. They're not really sure how to handle it, but do you think, how do you think they could have handled it better? It's interesting because I feel like, especially today with the amount of social media that's available for everyone, we've shined such a spotlight on bullying and how to properly deal with it. Um, I don't think, you know, when I was in fourth, fifth, sixth grade, you know, everyone talks about, you know, bullying, you know, there's a no bullying zone. There's where there's no tolerance for bullying, but what do you do when you're presented with evidence and a kid who's saying, I need help. I, I could go to those faculty, those faculty members and say, this is how I think you should have handled it. I would have liked to see punishment. I wouldn't have liked to see, you know, just say you're sorry. Um, are you sure you're sorry? Are you, are you really sure you're sorry? You know, cause that's basically what, that's basically from what I, from what I remember, that's essentially what happened. I would have liked to see consequences. I don't, I've gone back to different reunion events for that school because I do respect that school. My dad went there, my uncle went there when they were young. And I think it's important no matter where you go to be a good alumni, but, and I've seen those kids there. And I've seen the looks in their eyes when they recognize who I am. And we both immediately recognize, remember, you know, what kind of relationship we had, um, them being the bully and, and me being the, recip uh, the recipient of it. And I don't think they're sorry. Um, and I would, I would like for have, I would like for them to, to feel sorry. And I know they don't because they weren't, they weren't punished for it. And, um, I don't know what that punishment should be but I enough that they, they would be sorry because I don't think that they are. It's funny. I don't know if Sean can attest this, but Sean knows pretty well that I was pretty overweight, you know, when I was younger and I got bullied a lot too in middle school and even through high school. Um, and I agree with you. I think back kind of in our day, it was not in a bad way going off your sense, but I think that generations have gotten a little bit softer. I think that there's some bullying that obviously needs to be addressed. And I think that there's, some that doesn't really need to be addressed. It's kind of like toughen up a little bit. Um, but back in that day, I don't think that they try to differentiate between the two. You know, it was always say you're sorry, whether it was physical abuse or they never try to figure out the severity of the situation. It would just kind of say you're sorry and move on type of thing. Um, and it sucks that you had to go through that. And I wasn't particularly in your situation, but I've obviously gone through bullying before too. And one thing for me that I kind of use it, I wouldn't say as motivation, but almost, but you said that those people don't really feel sorry for their actions. Um, for me, I just try to be better than they are in a sense of, you know, almost forgive them for what they've done and continue to prove them wrong by just being a better, better person, a better human being, and just strive to be the best that I can in every situation. I think that my mom always used to say, kill them with kindness. And when I was younger, I was like, yeah, right. I kind of want to beat the shit out of them. But, um, it's what you have to do. You just have to go above and above and beyond what they're doing and show that you're a better person at the end of the day. Um, and that's just kind of how I think that those situations should be gone about. Yeah. And it's interesting because, you know, I, I think back to those different alumni events that I've gone to where I've, where I've seen those people and I've seen those individuals and I've just thought to myself and, and I tried, I think, I think I tried to go up to them and I said, Hey, and I tried to let, you know, it be water to the bridge. And I try to say just, hey, you know, I hope everything's going well. Um, and then, you know, 
there's that moment where you you envision they're going to say, you know what, I realize I wasn't good to you back then, and uh, I'd like to apologize for that. But you know, and then the second they open their mouth, they're like, you know what, I can't get past it. And maybe that's just something that that I need to get past because if I can't get past it, they're already past it. They don't care. Um, and I think if if you don't, you know, if you don't let it, or I should say, if you let it go then they don't win anymore because as long as you're still thinking about it, they still win. Yeah, hundred percent. I agree with that. Uh, switching lanes a little bit here to your uh, soccer career in high school, you became the start of your junior year. Um, and then your senior year, you, you switch back to a backup role. How did you use this setback as motivation? And do you think this uh, helped prepare you for the role that you filled at UMass Lowell? Yeah, that, that moment was everything. Um, for me, I think it really, I think it was the absolute starting point uh, for where I am today. Backing up a little bit, um, going into my junior year of high school, um, I was set to be the backup. I was completely immensely prepared. There was a kid who was also a junior. Uh, he was on varsity as a sophomore. And uh, he was set to be the next starter. We're warming up for the very first game our junior year. Um, I finally make varsity. I'm prepare to be the backup. He's a starter. We're warming up and he dislocates his shoulder. He's done for the year. Um, so all of a sudden I'm thrust into this starting role where I'm not mentally prepared. I'm not ready skill wise. And, you know, I have to take on this role for the entire season. I can't take a break. I can't take a mental rest. I have to be there for the team. Um, and I let us to, I, you know, it was a slow start. I wasn't ready. I, we, we tied our first game two to two. I remember that game as clear as day because it was, it was, uh, it was a wake up call and I ended up leading us to uh, a, a league title and our first state tournament win in four years cut to senior year. Um, you know, tryouts go through, we're already, you know, that we go through tryouts, we go through preseason, everything's fine. This kid who was supposed to be the starter last year is healthy he was already a really popular guy. He, you know, he, the coaches liked him. He had a big personality. The, the, he was, he was a popular guy in high school. Kids liked him. They named him the starter and then named him captain. I started three games that year. Um, I started the first two games cause he dislocated his finger um, in preseason. And then I started for the first half on my, on, on my senior day. Throughout that season, I worked I think probably as hard as I ever have um, in my soccer career uh, because I felt that I deserved that starting position. I thought I'd earned it the previous year and I thought that he didn't have to earn the starting role. I thought it was because maybe they felt bad that he sat out his junior year. Maybe they felt bad he was injured. Maybe they thought that he was owed some games, but that meant that they were completely screwing me over. I felt like, and I needed to be better than him because quite frankly, he was still a little bit better than me when the season started. He, you know, he still, he didn't really have a great team mentality, but he was good enough that he didn't need to. So I worked as hard as I could to be the point where I was either as good as he was and I, or, or was better than he was. I went to the coaches. I was like, what can I, do? what can I do? What, what more can I do so I can earn some more playing time? Um, and they said, he's just better than you. And, you know, we're probably not going to play you. Um, I went to the athletic director because I didn't think my coaches were trying to help me. I went to the athletic director. I said, this is the situation. I think I'm deserved. I think I'm owed more playing time. And she said, well, you should probably quit if that's the way you feel. The athletic director of my high school told me to quit playing soccer. And that moment really opened my eyes to say, you know what? This isn't going to be the end. It's not going to end like this. I need to prove to my coaches. I need to prove to the athletic director that they were wrong that I should be playing. And I, my, my willing, my willingness to work as hard as I was and my, my talent and my skill and my, my mental toughness skyrocketed from that year. And it, you know, there's a, there's a whole lot of talking points along the way that led me to where I'm at with UMass Lowell. But if had that not happened, I probably would have been, you know, had, had his, had he not dislocated his shoulder, his, his junior year, and had I not been benched my senior year, there's no way I would have been 
mentally prepared for, for division one athletics. There's no way I would have been prepared talent wise. And, and I don't think it would have let it, I, I would not be even close to mentally prepared for, for life after college. I don't think. Well, it's a lot of adversity you have to face there. I can't even really comprehend the athletic director really not helping you while the coaches weren't either. It's a tough situation, but like you said, you made the best out of it. And certainly that can be uh, a testament to what you're doing now. It seems like you're very successful now with all your other, um, all your other tasks you're working on. So everyone's recruiting process is different. And since you were a backup in your senior year, can you describe what your recruiting process was like and why you chose to go to UMass Lowell? My recruiting process was, was interesting. Not being, you know, I didn't play, um, and if you want to, it's completely different from hockey. I know that in terms of recruiting. Um, but if you want to play for soccer, if you want to play at a high level, you usually have to play um, a very elite club soccer instead of high school. Um, and I chose, you know, not knowing about that. I didn't play club soccer until my junior year of high school because I had no idea. Um, and that's, you know, because you can't get recruited while you're playing in high school because that, you know, all soccer is happening in the fall and all the college coaches are busy coaching their teams in the fall. So you're not really going to get looks. So what I had, you know, what you have to do is you have to go to, to ID camps and recruiting camps and get seen in front of these coaches in the off season. And I talked to as many coaches as I could. I sent emails. I made a highlight reel. And I was getting looks from a lot of different Division three schools. Uh, mostly struggling division three schools, but um, the more camps that I went to, the more I was able to actually walk up to and talk to some of these division one coaches. And some of them said, yeah, just shoot me an email. And, you know, they, they gave me their standard, shoot me an email and, and we'll see if we can set up a time to talk. Um, but the more I went through the recruiting process, the, the harder and harder I realized it was to, to play a division one sport. Um, and the more I started to look at the school aspect of it and how much I would fit in at the actual school, which is obviously more important. I fell in love with a division three school. I fell in love with Springfield college and I was accepted, which was great. But the coach there told me that he didn't think I was quite good enough yet for his program. Springfield college at the time and still is a very highly touted division three soccer program. Um, their, their head coach then is now an assistant coach for, for, for Real Salt Lake in major league soccer. Um, he's, he's a phenomenal guy. And, but at the time, you know, he said, you know, I don't think you're quite ready. We'd love to have you walk on maybe your sophomore year. Um, and I said, if that's the way it's gotta be, that's the way it's gotta be. I know I have to earn, I know what it's like to have to earn a spot at this point. And at that time, I was, you know, training at a private uh, goalkeeper coach uh, who was the goalkeeper coach at my high school. And he texted me. Uh, he said, hey, I, I, I broke my nose. Um, can you film for me for my men's league team next weekend? I said, sure, I'd be happy to. And he goes, they're a bunch of, they're a great group of guys, a lot of former D1 guys, but, you know, they'd be, they'd be happy to have you. And I'm sure you, you'd be fine. So I went and I played. We beat the other, or we tied the other team 1-1, I think. It was, I made like six or seven saves. Um, I know it's not hockey, and I'm not making 30 saves, but um, six or seven saves, decent game for soccer. And um, I didn't realize until the end of the game that one of the guys on the other team was the head coach for UMass Lowell. And, I, you know, I didn't play phenomenally that game, but I played well, and I knew I had met him at a couple of the different combines that I had gone to in the IT camps for, for high school. And we, we talked uh, after the game. He said, hey, he, he recognized me because I had gone to a bunch of different ID camps at Lowell uh, prior to that point. Um, and uh, it's important to note that previously I was rejected by UMass Lowell. I didn't get in. My grades from high school weren't phenomenal. And I was you know, rejected by the school. And... My senior year of high school, though, I had a 4.0. I had the best year of academics I'd ever had. And he came up to me and, you know, I'm, I, I want to make sure to clarify that I'm paraphrasing because if I get any details wrong, I could get the school might get a little bit mad at me. But he said, you know, send me your senior year grades and I'll talk to admissions. Um, 
And so I said, you know, sure, I'm not expecting anything to happen. You know, I'm ready to go to Springfield. I have my roommate at Springfield. I have my classes all set. It's about July. It's late July at this point. And he calls me three days later. He goes, admissions saw that you had a 4.0 and, you know, we'd love to have you come play at first at UMass Lowell. We'd, have, we'd love to have you on the roster. And I was frustrated. I wasn't happy, if you can believe it. Um, because I, you know, I had everything set at Springfield. I had everything I thought I wanted over here. It was a great school. I had a great kid for a roommate. We met when we went for to tour, um, who he also wanted to walk onto the soccer team. We had a lot in common. And then all of a sudden I'm presented with this opportunity, this really difficult decision. And my, my mom told me, she goes, you know, go tour the school another time, go talk to the coach. And, you know, just then you can really make your decision because he went, he did go through a lot to try and get you to come. And I said, you know what, that's fair. So I went to Lowell, I I think a third time, sat down with the coach. We had a 20 minute conversation at most. I left, you know, I left, I went home. I called the coach. I said, you know, I'm going to come to Lowell. And, um, it was the, it was easily the best decision I ever made, uh, without a doubt. And, you know, you know, one of the reasons I wanted to tell that story in particular is because if anyone who's listening to this is, is still going through a recruiting process, just because a coach tells you you're not ready yet, just because it might not be a straight line, um, just because you might think it's too late. Mind you, preseason for men's soccer starts in August, starts early August. This was late July that I ended up committing to, to Lowell. And your journey doesn't end when somebody tells you that you're not good enough or that you're not quite ready because that's, that should be the moment that you tell yourself, all right, now I need to prove them, prove to them why I am ready. And you could, you know, things, my mom always says, uh, luck is preparation meeting opportunity. And I was incredibly lucky that my goalkeeper coach broke his nose. And I was prepared, and that was the opportunity, and I had to take it. My dad always talks about how, you know, sometimes you wait for the opportunity where all the stars align, and it seems like all your stars align. And Sean has said it multiple times in previous episodes, um, and you just touched on it, you know, when no one else is betting on you, bet on yourself. And it seems like you did that, um, and it worked out for you. Like you said, one of the most important things is education. And that was the biggest thing that you were after. Um, and UMass Lowell is a great education. Uh, and that's the biggest thing that you, you could take away from that aside from athletics. But diving into your athletic career at Lowell, you only started one game. Uh, you had to go through just as much training, nutrition, all the same details as the starters. What was your mindset on a daily basis for four years? And did it change at all over time? It absolutely changed. It was really hard. Um, I remember the summer, that summer, after I committed and was training for the fitness test in the fall, I was already behind because they had started a month earlier to, to train for the packet, uh, for the fitness packet. Um, and I, you know, I was invited by some of the, the older guys there to come and, and, you know, stand in net and train with them for a little bit. I didn't make a single save in that little, just uh, that little captain's practice that they had. I was bad. And I was like, holy shit, I'm not ready for this. Um, but obviously, that didn't, it didn't quite stop me. And as we moved towards the regular season, I didn't really know. Because I, I should keep in mind that I was, the, I was the only other goalkeeper on the roster. There was two. Usually, we have three or four. I, re, I slowly but surely realized that I was brought in to be the backup for the starter, who was an all-conference goalkeeper. He was fantastic uh, for the three years that we played together. And at the time, I was thinking, you know, it's similar to high school. You know, we're going to split time. I'm going to get time in net. I'm going to get some playing time. Not the case. I didn't, I didn't know that, you know, it's rare for a freshman to play, let alone in a, in a position where you don't sub in or out. Um, and I, I went to the coaches. I was like, you know, why am I not? I, I had to ask. I was like, why am I not playing? I didn't, I didn't, I didn't get it. Um, I didn't get that 
I was brought in um, that you have to be developed at that, especially at such a high level. You have to be really melded into it and it takes time. And they said, and they kept telling me, you know, you're not quite there yet. These are what we want you to work on. And then I would go to practice and I'd work on it and have a really good day at practice. And then I wouldn't play the next game. And I'm like, wait, why am I not playing? I'm doing what they're asking. And it took a couple of years. My biggest fear though, at the time, I had a really bad attitude. I would, I would pound my fist when I, when I would let a goal in. I would, I would scream at myself. I wasn't, I was really, I was too hard on myself and I wasn't working to be a teammate. I was working to play, which is a, which I think is a really important distinction. If you're, you know, if you're working to better yourself, great. You, you want to be a better player, but if you're working to better yourself, you're not working to better the team and that hurts the team. And it melded into the, my thought process was I'm going to get cut. We had biweekly meetings with our coach, with the coaches, just, it was you and the entire coaching staff and they'd sit down and talk about your progress, talk about school, things are going well. And my, every single time for, I think the first two years of those biweekly meetings, every single time when I went in with the mentality thinking, I'm going to walk out of this, this, this office cut from the team, which motivated me, I think, to work even harder to make sure that wouldn't happen. And the coaches would periodically tell me, you don't need to be so hard on yourself. Just keep working on, you know, your footwork, keep working on your shot stopping, keep working on uh, communication, et cetera. And it wasn't until a couple of the captains actually pulled me aside and said, why are you so hard on yourself? And I think it would be better, you know, if you, you know, train like you want to play, but take a step back and realize what's in front of you. Because my sophomore year, they, they brought in two other goalkeepers. So it went from being two to four. These two guys were incredibly talented as well. And it, I realized it, it hit me, I think, late in my sophomore year that, all right, I'm not going to play. But I can help my team somehow. I just need to find what that way is. And I didn't, you know, all of a sudden, I, you know, I, I complained a little bit less. I, I kept working as hard as I, I, I wanted to. Um, and I started lifting other guys in the team up. I started lifting the freshmen up. I started complimenting uh, just the guys on little stuff. Nice touch, nice pass, nice shot, nice goal. Even if it was a goal on me, I said, you know, it's a great shot. And anything you can build, anything you can do as a teammate to build up the rest of your team, I think is, is the most important thing you can do aside from scoring goals in games. And, you know, I can't do that as a goalkeeper, let alone a backup, but it, didn't until, take until my junior year to realize there's so many more ways that I can help my team without actually stepping on the playing field. I can join the student athlete advisory committee uh, where, you know, we're the voice for the, for the team with a voice for the student athlete population. I, you know, I can work as hard as I can. I can, I can motivate the rest of the rest of the team to do better. I can be a voice, you know, as, as, as a junior, you're an upperclassman. You can really motivate your freshmen to, who aren't playing to to work harder and train harder, so that you know when their time comes, they're mentally prepared. And by the time I was a senior, you know I I realized that my time as a starter um, was in high school, but it, it was it was my time to be a teammate, and it was my time to help that program as best I could off the field. Because what happens off the field, I think you could argue is you guys can attest is, is, is just as important as what happens on the field, maybe more. Um, because if you guys, if you don't gel off the field, it's not going to happen on the field. You can't fake it on the field, on the field is, and on the ice is where everything gets exposed. And I went to my coach, you know, midway through my senior year, and I told him, you know, I, I, I realize I'm not going to play. I know that. And I, and you know that, but my senior night, I, I have family coming, you know, to be there for me on my senior night. And I'd love for them to see me, if nothing else, just walk out onto the field for the starting lineups. You can sub me out after 30 seconds if you want to. And, you know, I just want them to see me. I just want them to see me. I want them, I want them to be able to see me walk off the field for the last time. And he's, he didn't take a breath. He said, okay. And I said, what? He goes, you don't, have to, you don't have to think about it? And he said, no, you have done everything we've asked for four years. And, you know, skill-wise, sure, there's obviously, there's always room for improvement. If you, you know, if you want to take that next step, 
professionally, you got a long way to go. But, you know, what we've asked of you, you've done. And he gave me 15 minutes. I thought he was going to sub me off right away. I didn't, you know, he gave me 15 minutes. And I think it was one, it was some of the happiest 15 minutes of my life because it came, I came to the revelation that, you know, the payoff isn't getting as much playing time as you want. The payoff, at least for me, was realizing that in that moment, I had proven everyone who doubted me in soccer. I had proved my high school coaches wrong. I had proved the athletic director wrong. I had proved some, some of the other teammates who didn't think I was good enough on my own team, you know, freshman, sophomore year. I proved them wrong because I got on the field for 15 minutes in a conference game where it matters. And that's, you know, going from a freshman who thinks he's owed time to being grateful for 15 minutes, I think is, is a, is a, is a huge mental shift. And I think it's one that a lot of college athletes struggle to do is accept the role that you're given because no matter where you stand on the roster, you have a role whether you accept it or not, I think is the difference. Yeah. I think it's really hard to accept that role too. And Sean and I have touched on it multiple times through different people. And uh, as a part of this podcast, and we give a lot of credit to the people that show up every day that know that they're probably not going to play because I think it's honestly hard to show up every day, you know, give 110% show up to the workouts, have a good attitude, support your teammates when shit doesn't go right for you because it's very easy to get down on yourself when times are like that. I think it's very easy to stay high when you're playing games, you know, you're going to get minutes um, when pretty much everything that you're working for is for not um, in, in your situation. And I think it's great that you played the 15 minutes. And like you said, you, you prove people wrong and you most definitely did, but um, you know, for your parents and stuff, I don't think it was really about the 15 minutes for them. I think that after everything that you did there at four years with showing up every day and, being the best teammate you can and being an ultimate teammate, I think that your parents would have been proud of the person and the character that you have. It was definitely a moment for them too. It's funny, you know, I played a couple of different sports in high school. My other favorite sport that I actually thought for the longest time I was going to play in college was baseball. And I had to quit baseball my junior year um, because club soccer was also in the spring. And I start, you know, I made, you know, I tried out and I didn't make varsity. I made junior varsity in high school for baseball, but it was at that time where I was actually, you know, I was starting to get emails from college coaches saying, you know, we'd be, we'd love to, have, you know, bring you in for an interview or something like that. And I realized that baseball was, had taken me about as far as it could. And I didn't get to play a last game in, in high school for baseball. I didn't have a senior night. I didn't have a game where my mom knew that that was it. And my mom, my mom still talks about how she wishes, you know, how she wishes she would have known that that was the last, uh, the last time she'd seen me play. And regardless of, of what sport it was, I think it's nice for, for her uh, and my dad to have closure and knowing that, you know, they don't have to worry that I'm not going to crack my head open on a, on a goalpost or take a line drive to the eye, but it's, um, I still, I still talk, I still tell my mom all the time that um, I, I have, I'm going to join a men's league uh, softball league for one night just to walk off the field with flowers for my mom. But um, it's uh, they, they were proud of me for two reasons. I think one for sticking with it because I very easily could have, could have left like so many of my, my teammates did who weren't playing. I had, there was eight of us, uh, in my freshman class and three of us finished out all four years together. The rest of them were either cut or they quit. Um, and I think, yeah, they were proud of me for that. And I think they're proud of me because I had matured. I, I would tell them all the time, you know, it's like, I, it sucks, you know, I'm not playing and, and I don't think some of my teammates like me because I have, because I, at the time I didn't know I had a bad attitude. Um, and you know, going from that to in our final awards banquet being awarded um, most dedicated. Um, it showed that not only the coaches realized that they realized and acknowledged my dedication to the team, but 
it wasn't about not playing anymore. It was about being there for the rest of the team and trying to bring us as far as we could through my own methods. We've really highlighted that moment, those 15 minutes that you did get on the field in the conference game. And that's obviously a huge accomplishment, but I think something else is just the process and the journey. And it's not about where you end up. Like one of the things that Garrett and I have kind of lived by and it's been instilled in us from our hockey programs is process over outcome. And you gained so much from that time where you had to struggle. And, you know, there's a bit of a, there's a bit of a high you get from pushing yourself as hard as you can and working toward a goal every day and the teammates you made along the way, the friendships, I'm sure that working that hard on the field helped you work hard in the classroom too. Like it all translates. And I think that throughout that journey, even though some of the results didn't go the way you wanted, you gained a lot of life skills. It's, it's a tough thing to tell an athlete to work as hard as you can physically and mentally knowing that you're not going to play. Um, it's hard to, to envision working for a goal that isn't there. It's not physically there. Um, where, you know, give me your blood, give me your sweat, give me your tears, but we're not going to give you any time. Um, that's a hard thing for a lot of athletes to, to mentally go through and comprehend even. And taking a step back and being in a role, being in a backup goal, goalkeeper role, it's an opportunity to get to know the rest of your team. It's an opportunity to take a step back and, and look at the process of what goes on tactically. Look at what the, look at the process um, for, your, for your defenders, for your midfielders, for your forwards. How can you help them? Because you're sitting next to them while they're on the bench. You're, you're, you're taking shots from them when they want to get better too, when they're trying to score. The, the harder you work as a goalkeeper, the harder it is for your forwards. The more saves you make, the more they realize they need to get better in order to get past you. You know, I always like to say, you know, if they can't get past me, the backup goalkeeper, it's it's going to want to make them work harder because if they can't get a back past a backup goalkeeper, how are they going to get past a starter on another on another team? And you know, it's yeah, it's 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 something that not a lot of people. I I, I understand that it's not a, that it's not a concept that people can understand. Um, and I had people come up to me on my, on my own team saying, you know, are you going to transfer? Are you going to, are you going to quit? You know, what do you, what do you want to do? I said, why would I quit? You know, what's, if I quit, then everyone else who thought I was going to quit wins. If I quit, then my athletic director in high school wins. If I quit, then the kid who started in front of me in high school, who wasn't even playing in college anymore wins because he, he stopped me he he won the role and he stopped me forever if i quit and if if i come home and my friends say you know why aren't you playing anymore you know well it was too hard well what was hard about it were you not enjoying yourself was the team not fun was the was the idea that you weren't you know either you were playing at the highest level not fun what you know it's yeah i it's hard to to put into words the appreciation that I have for people who don't play and still and still stay there um but uh it's I think it's a lesson for for anyone who's having a tough time with with playing time who's who feels like they deserve more and the the message I would have is just continue to do what you're asked accept the role that you have and no matter what amount of gratification you get from your teammates or your coaches, it's going to be worth it because they realize that you're doing what they asked. And that's all you can do as a teammate. So you and Sean both just touched on something that's very important. And uh, I've been told this. And as I get older, I kind of realize it as one that sports really is about building life lessons. And I think that's what it's taught you. I know it's taught Sean and I um, some very big life lessons and we weren't really willing to accept them at the time that we were, given or taught them, but as we've matured and grown, we've realized that they're very important. Um, and then for me too, no one really remembers all the games that you play, right? You remember if you win a championship game, you remember the big games that you have, but at the end of the day, ultimately you remember the relationships that you have with your teammates. And I think that's one thing that we should really note here because you talked about how at the beginning you had a bad attitude. 
And I'm sure when you had a bad attitude, you didn't have a lot of people on your team that wanted to hang out with you. You didn't have a lot of good relationships. But as your attitude changed, I think that people probably gained a very different perspective on you um, and gained a lot of respect for you. And I think that the biggest thing that you've taken away from your experience besides your education, which is very important to note, is the relationships with your teammates. Hands down. Um, my freshman year, I, uh, since I was such a late commit, I didn't, you know, I didn't get the chance to, to get set up to live with a teammate. Um, funnily enough, I wasn't even in the same building and, uh, to make matters worse, I was right next to their building and my window in my dorm room looked out into a lawn where they would often frequently hang out. And that was really hard to swallow for a couple of reasons. One, I thought, you know, they didn't, they forgot to invite me. B, I could see them having a good time without me. And C, you know, it, I was already felt separated because I didn't have, you know, I didn't, I didn't let it be known that I wanted to hang out with them because I, you know, I had such a garbage attitude when I was in training because I wasn't very good. And, and uh, I would yell at myself and that doesn't, you're right. That doesn't make people want to be near you. And as that, you know, as the years go on, you're right. Everything, everything sort of fades to gray when you think about every single game you've ever played. Sure. You might remember a goal you scored. You might remember, um, a great moment, um, an overtime win, a championship. But what lasts is your relationship with your teammate, or your teammates. And you start to realize that as you focus less and less on playing time and more and more on being part of a team. Because, you know, and I'm sure you guys know, is being part of a, being part of a, a college program, you know, you have, you have alumni events and, these guys come back and what I noticed through my, through the years at Lowell was more and more guys kept coming back. And that meant a lot to me because I didn't really have that growing up. I had a lot of friends that moved away um, or went, joined the military or fell to addiction. Um, and my, my circle started to thin out and what I wanted most in the world was to be able to be a part of a big group and a group that stayed together. Um, because for me, everyone I've known over the years has either, has either gone away or I can't be around them anymore because of the way that they are and, and the choices that they've made. And what I really wanted, like I said, was to be part of that group that stays together forever. And I realized that the better, if I'm a better teammate, if I'm a better person, they're going to want to do that for me. And I'm going to want to do that for them too. And it's just going to keep going around. And if, yeah, if I can, if, if I can be around a group of people that wants to be around me, then I'm going to do whatever it takes to do that. We want to talk about something else that had a big impact on your life. And, you know, it's not an easy conversation, but at different times in your life, you suffered from depression. How did you realize that you weren't just experiencing a lot of sadness and it was depression. And how did you climb out of this dark hole? Growing up, um, I had a number of very close friends and in high school, those friends of mine started making some bad choices. Uh, but I was not a leader in high school. I was a follower and I followed them with those bad choices. Um, and you can't, you know, I know now that you can't be your own person without making your own decisions, um, and making your own mistakes. And I was making their mistakes. I suffered in school. Um, I suffered with my relationship with my family. Um, they were disappointed in me. I was disappointed in myself, but I was, I was focused on having fun with my friends and being with them um and being liked and fitting in and and those are all those, that's a recipe for disaster if you can't realize that you're not helping yourself and you're not helping your family the people that are supposed to help you for the rest of your life and it all it all hit me when i got caught making bad decisions and i was cut off from all of my friends 
um, I was on house arrest from my, 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 my family. And I resent, I, at the time I resented my mom for doing that, for taking away my, what I thought was my source of joy and my sources of entertainment and my sources of freedom. Um, and I was suddenly very alone because my friends who I thought were my friends made fun of me for, you know, having to stay home. They made fun of me for getting caught. Uh, they made it, they made, you know, they kept doing things without me. It, it, it became very clear that they didn't need me there. Um, and that's a very lonely feeling. It's a very empty feeling when you realize that you um, can be discarded like that. It took a very long time. You know, I was, I was forced into therapy. I, th I felt like I was forced into it um, because, you know, I, I had been in therapy already. My parents had been divorced and they thought that that'd be good for me. So I knew that I, I already had a disassociation with, with therapists and I thought it never worked. And, um, you know, I, I was prescribed um, uh, antidepressants, which just sort of, it mellowed me out, but I was, I, I realized that I was mellow, which made me sad because I'm usually a, a happy, eccentric, eclectic person. And, you know, I'm suddenly realizing I'm, I'm being forced, I'm being faced with all of these emotions that I didn't have to deal with before because I could just, I could go and, and smoke weed. I could go and, and, and ignore those feelings. I could go and do stupid things uh, because I was, you know, I was 15, 16 and I was, that's, I thought that, you know, my, my perception of reality was that's your time to go do stupid things and then it all works out somehow. But that somehow is because you need to do your due diligence and become, you know, a responsible human being and a productive member of society. And I wasn't doing that at the time. And I didn't have anybody to lean on anymore. I didn't have my friends who I thought were my friends. Um, and I had my family who was disappointed in me. But their way of helping me, which ended up, which ultimately worked, was, you know, taking me out of that, that group, was separating me from the people that I was following. And they forced me to make my own decisions and be my own person through therapy. And the antidepressants ultimately started to help. And then I didn't need them anymore. Um, but I, I'm not afraid to talk about it because I know there's people everywhere there's, it's, it's no longer, you know, the stigma around mental health needs to change still. It's getting better. But um, there's so many people out there that, that are making bad choices because they don't know how to make choices for themselves quite yet. Um, there's people that are in a group of friends that their friends don't value them. Um, and they don't feel valued in that, in that friendship. And they don't feel it's an equal, um, they don't feel like it's a two-way street. and the message that I would have for those people is if you don't feel it, that's probably because it's not there. Um, and if you're afraid to ask, it's because the answers they're going to give you, you're not going to like. So, you know, it, it's going to be hard for a little bit to take, to take a step away from the people that you think are supposed to be friends for the rest of your life. But, you know, if you take a step back and they, and they tell you, Hey, where'd you go? We miss you then that might be a sign that, they, all right, now you know that you're, now that you know that you're friends. But if you take a step back and they don't reach out and they're not worried about you, they don't check in, I think that's, I think that's the sign that you need to, to start making some new choices and the ones that you've been making haven't been working for you. And I, it, took, it took a long time for me to realize that I need to be my own person and I need to make my own mistakes, not because somebody else is making a mistake that I wanted to follow and be cool and fit in because fitting in is – is how you get lost in the shuffle. It's, it's standing out and being your own person is what gets you ahead. And I think, you know, your own definition of getting ahead can be what it is, but if that's, what's going to make you happy, then you need to stand out and be yourself. You talked about how the antidepressants actually made you sad as well, because you knew that you weren't your old happy self. Um, and a little bit of reflection definitely helped too, but what were some things you could do on like a daily, a daily routine to make yourself feel better during that time? I think just that is just find a routine. I was fortunate that 
my mom didn't take away everything. I was still able to play soccer. I was still able to go to soccer practice and do that and, and, you know, have a healthy outlet, you know, be active and uh, be around people that are most likely making new choices. And it was, it was also so that she knew where I was. She knew I was at soccer practice. She knew I was, I was not making, I was not out doing bad things. And it was, uh, and that's just for me, that's just my example, but for anybody listening, find a healthy routine, find something that where you're not sitting around thinking about how you miss whatever you were doing. Because if you have time, you know, the worst thing I think for anyone who's, who's going through depression or is suffering from anxiety, the worst thing for that person is, or the worst thing for those people is, is, is time to think. Because if you have time to think, then you're going to get in your own head. I think you need to occupy that time with, with healthy alternatives, with going for a walk, um, starting a project, doing something that's going to engage your mind in a positive way instead of, you know, ultimately sitting around feeling sorry for yourself or sitting around worrying about, um, you know, I say feeling sorry for yourself, not playing the woe is me card, but you know, you're sad because all of a sudden, you know, everything that you thought brought you joy isn't there anymore. And so, you know, like, yeah, like I said, just occupy your mind with things that are, that are going to positively influence you and, and ultimately leads you down a path toward that leads to happiness and um, healthy self-expression. You give a lot of great points and great advice for people that are suffering from depression, um, from someone who's seen friends or family go through depression. What advice do you have to those that are on the outside looking in? Because a lot of times with people that have depression, it's not easily seen. They do a very good job of hiding it. A lot of times their depression is when they're, they're by themselves, they're lonely. They often have the biggest smile on their faces. So would you give any advice to friends of someone who may be going through depression on how to spot if they're depressed or maybe some things to do to help them with that depression? Absolutely. Because for those outside looking in, people who are going through anxiety and depression don't want you to worry about them. They want you to think that they're okay. Uh, more often than not, they're often the ones reaching out to you um, to make sure that you're okay and that you're taken care of. Um, if when when people are depressed, you know I'm not I'm not I'm doing my best not to make general statements because everyone goes through something differently. Everyone experiences depression and anxiety differently. But for me and for people that I've talked to, we want people to notice. We want people to to reach out and ask if we're okay for us because we don't want to be the one to say that. We don't want to be the one to say I need help. We don't want to be the one to say I'm, I'm struggling because we don't want to feel like a burden because we already, that's, you know, for a lot of people who are going through depression, they feel like they already are. And they don't want to feel like even more of a burden because they're reaching out for extra help. So for the outside looking in, don't, well, obviously don't assume that everyone's, everyone around you is depressed and tiptoe around them, but don't be afraid to check in and say, I hope you're doing okay. If there's anything you want to talk about, I'm here to talk about, or I'm here to talk with. Um, just periodically, periodically checking in because every once in a while and the response, instead of things are going good, it might change to things are going fine. And that's enough to say, well, it's usually good. What's going on? Um, or if there's anything, you know, cause what, whether or not they answer you with, yeah, I'm actually depressed or yeah, I'm going through an anxiety attack. It might, it's not going to be in front of you. It's going to be little signs here and there. Um, where things go from being good to being just okay. Things are great to being good. Um, it's in, because eventually you, the, whoever you're reaching out to is going to, they're going to trust you a bit because you're, you're checking in on them and they, they see you as somebody who worries about them. And eventually they might open up to you, you know, you know what, I am going through something. Can I talk to you about something for a sec? Can I vent for a little bit? And then you might pick up on a couple of things. And then all of a sudden the person, whoever's going through whatever they're going through has somebody to talk to. And that wasn't there before because more often than not, we feel like we don't have anybody to talk to or anybody who's going to understand because nobody checks in. And now all of a sudden they have this outlet. And so if, if, if anyone who's listening, who, who, feels like they have a friend who's going through something or who has no idea who just has a group of friends. And just, I would say, just reach out, 
more often because especially in in the world that we're living in, I'm not going to call it these unprecedented times for the thousandth time. Um, but in a time like this where we're even more isolated, communication is 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 a savior because it's it's what you know it's what normal uh, I I say normal it's what normal people crave just in general but if you're going through depression if you're having if you have anxiety you in these times we you you need it more than anything else because you otherwise you're like i said the worst thing for anyone going through depression anxiety is time to think and now that's all that there is right now on the flip side of that coin i actually am very close with someone who's going through that and um sometimes when i do try and reach out i get the response like hey i don't really want to talk right now and it's really hard because I care about that person so much, but is there anything I can really do besides give them space? Like, I don't want to hound them and just be like, Hey, like, let's talk about this. Like, I want to be there for you, but I'm not really sure what to do in that situation. In that situation, I actually have a similar, uh, I have a friend who goes through something similar where they're just like, you know what? Their healthy alternative is just turning off everything, every device they have, turning off their phone, turning off their computer, and just taking a mental break um, because sometimes that's just what it takes. You can't, you know, if you have, you know, social media for a lot of people can be unhealthy mentally. And he tells, he tells me, he gives me a disclaimer. He goes, listen, today I'm just going to turn off my phone for the day. So if you don't hear from me, that's why I just need time to reset mentally. Um, I would respect their request because if it might just be, they're anxious and you know if they have too many you know there's the old saying too many cooks you know if they have too many voices giving them different opinions all at once it's going to be it's going to continue to fuel that anxiety i would say you know what okay you know if he comes to you and says i just don't want to talk about it right now that means he's not ready to talk about it so i would my advice would be say you know what? okay i'll give you you know I'll give you plenty of space and, you know, whenever you're ready to talk, I'm ready to listen because that's, you know, like I said, if, if they come to you and they say, yeah, I, I can't, I can't talk about it right now. It's too hard. If you force it out of them, it's just going to make them more uncomfortable. So it's whenever they're ready, it's not whenever you're ready to help them because they don't, they might not need that help right then. That's really good advice. And looking toward the end, you've kind of made it through the other side of your anxiety and your depression but do you still ever experience these feelings again? Or is there a, you know, a light at the end of the tunnel where you are a hundred percent back to yourself? It's funny. Um, I don't think it's a tunnel. I don't think there's one way in one way out. I think there's a lot of different doors you can take on the side that'll lead to a place that has a lot more light in it. Um, and I don't think it's ever, it's, it's never smooth sailing all the time for everyone. Everyone falls down. Everyone gets hard. Everyone gets kicked in the nuts. And um, if you stay down for a little while, then I think you know, it's everyone gets up at a different pace. And everyone has different outlets um, that make them happy. For me, uh, I found um, stand-up comedy to be my outlet. I found music to be a huge outlet for me. Uh, I found the shamelessly that I found the TV, the TV show friends has saved me multiple times. And I've, I watch it on repeat nonstop, find your niche, find your thing that makes you happy. There is of course light at the end of the tunnel. That's, that's not a question for, for me. And, and it it was for a while, it was a question like, you know what, I don't know if I'm going to get out of this. Um, but there, there's of course for, for anyone and everyone, there's light at the end of the tunnel. Um, but you know, it's that light might seem far away, but if you look to your right and to your left, you might find different doors that, that are shortcuts uh, to that happiness. And of course, I, I have different moments where I feel depressed, where I get anxious, but I have, I'm quick to remind myself as to what's causing that anxiety. Because for a lot of people, they don't know the root, I feel like. Um, they don't know why they're sad, they don't know why they feel lonely. Um, I have to remind myself that I do have people that are close to me. I have my family that, that, that loves the hell out of me. I have my very wonderful girlfriend who will do, I think anything to make sure that I'm that I'm safe and that I'm happy. And 
I, you know, for people who might not have a great relationship with their family or might not have um, a significant other to rely on, I think it's important if you've, if you've found things that make you happy that are healthy, abuse that, abuse the things that are going to make you happy that are healthy because it's, it's always going to work. You know, if you have your, you have, you know, I have my music, music's always going to be there. I have stand-up comedy. There's always, there's always going to be stand-up comedy. I have the TV show friends on DVD, so I don't have to lose it to Netflix. Um, and find, find that thing that can, even if it's just momentarily, because the second you take that first step to making yourself happier, you're going to realize that it's a whole staircase. And you can start taking those steps periodically and, and slowly but surely you can, you can climb your way out. And yeah, once you're, once you've found that light, find out what's going to keep you there and, and just keep doing whatever you need to do to make you happy. Because there is, there are, there are ways that you can talk to people for free. There are ways that you can, that you can ask for help that aren't, you know, that aren't public if you don't want to make it public. And um for for anyone who's who struggles to stay to stay happy and to stay healthy um i would say i would just let any if you have a, if you have a close friend if you don't have a close friend i would let someone know because even if that person doesn't know you very well they're going to point you to something that they think is going to help and all you need is one person to know that you're not okay and i think that makes a big difference the last thing we want to touch on and don't want to miss is you also have your own podcast. So can you tell us a little about a little bit about that? I can totally tell you a little bit about that. I, about a year ago, um, it's a funny story how we started it. So I am part, I'm a, you know, being from the Boston area, I'm a huge Bruins fan. And um, I am part of a, a Bruins fan page on Facebook um, where, you know, people are just saying to fire the GM and fire the coach nonstop, but that's part of every fan base. Um, but I ran into this guy who between every Bruin, every period of a Bruins game would go live and just do recaps of the period. I started commenting on his live stream and he, and he kept saying, this guy's making a lot of good points. And so I started going live with him periodically and we struck, we became pretty close friends. And I said, you know what? A lot of people I think would be really down to listen if we started a podcast, because I think we have a lot of good things to say. And so um, a couple months later, we, you know, we had a logo developed. We found out, um, we found there's an, there's an app called Anchor that, um you can record he lives in north carolina by the way no no free advertising carter come on no free ads <laughs> even though we have an anchor ad in our podcast um we use anchor and uh he's in north because he's in north carolina and we were trying to figure out wait, how would we do this and he was like you know there's this cool app um i'm not getting paid for this and uh we started talking mostly Bruins and then we opened it up to, cause he's a big, I don't, he's from North Carolina. I don't know why he's such a huge Boston sports fan. I'm still not entirely sure, but we started, you know, talking Boston sports and we wanted to, we felt that, you know, there's a lot of networks that, that are biased. There's a lot of networks that aren't objective. And there's a lot of networks that I think miss the big point and the, and the big picture of, of, of a story. There's stories that they missed or they don't touch on enough. And so we decided to start a podcast. We've been doing it. We have, I think we have, but we tried to do it every week, but we've been struggling as of late with, with things going haywire. Uh, we have about 20, 21 episodes out. And um, it, it started to mix a little bit with the website that I have as well. Um, but the, the podcast is called Off the Post Boston Sports, a little shameless plug. And uh, my website is 30 Second Sports, and um, they've started to intertwine. But that's that's pretty much the whole that's pretty much the whole story. Is there's not much to it, but we're both big Boston sports fans, and we kind of met in a happenstance scenario, and uh, we've become pretty good friends. How do you feel about Tom Brady leaving Boston? It was time. It, was time. it sucks, but it was time. It was. Um, <laughs> 
he didn't want to work with the team anymore. That was clear. He didn't want to work with the young guys. He didn't care. Um, he wanted to win and he wanted to market himself. And the Patriots are a very team first organization. And the second you start to market yourself and market your own brand and not want to work with the team and work for yourself, which kind of goes back to what we were talking about earlier. The second you're not a good teammate, it's not going to work anymore. The second you're not working for the better of the team, it's not going to work. And I think it, it was a mix of Tom Brady's frustration boiling over um, with the young guys and, and uh, not getting a new deal done. And he wants to play until he's 45 and the Bucks said, sure. And the Patriots said, well, we're, you know, we're not going to give you that because you don't want to work with us anymore. So. Carter, the last thing I want to say is I've only known you for, you know, a short five years and I did not know all this about your life. Um, but I think that you should be very proud of yourself and all that you've accomplished. Uh, I can't remember verbatim or who says it, but they say success is measured by going from one failure to the next without a loss of enthusiasm. And I can say that if that's the definition of being successful, then you are very successful. So to continue to do what you do, and we can't thank you enough for coming on. It's been a great episode and it was a pleasure having you. It was a pleasure being here. If, if I may sign off with this, you know, if there's anyone who, who's listening to this episode and doesn't know their path quite yet, your path is in front of you. You just need to find the first step. Thank you for listening to this episode of Adversity University. You can follow more news about Adversity University on our social media pages. Our Instagram handle is adversity underscore university. Our Twitter handle is adversity underscore UNIV. And our Facebook page is Adversity University. If you know of any high-level athlete or professional that has an interesting story of overcoming adversity and you think they should share it, you can email us at adversityuniversitytalkshow at gmail.com. You can also use that email if you are interested in becoming a sponsor for Adversity University. We look forward to bringing our listeners more content from interesting guests weekly, so stay tuned on social media to see who could be next and what our past guests are up to now.